Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Hi, this is Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. My guest is Marlo Oaks, who is the treasurer of the great state of Utah. Um, and he has led a group of treasurers from around the country. This is not the first time he's led a group of treasurers from around the country to talk to the proxy services about how they're voting ESG. Well, wait, what are proxy services and what is ESG? Okay. Probably anyone watching this podcast already knows what ESG is, environmental, social, governance, investing. It uh, smuggles politics into the portfolio management process. Proxy services might not be as familiar, um, but Marlo Oaks is going to talk about what he's doing to hold them accountable. So you obviously thought that this was a group worth going out there and rounding up a group of your colleagues to, um, to confront um, and to do some digging for more information, why are proxy services so important? Well, so in the corporate in corporate America, every year there is a a vote that is taken by shareholders, and uh, you know large institutional investors they they have to cast you know thousands of votes. Um, every company they're voting for members of the board and then they, you know, they vote for an auditor and, but then they also vote on things that are brought before a company, um, perhaps by shareholder activists. And, and so, uh, because of the onerous amount of votes, um, that they're required to cast, they will often go and, and, uh, contract with a proxy advisory firm. So these are firms that, that specialize in making recommendations on how uh, investors should vote their shares. And and so there's two firms in particular that have, uh, they're basically an oligarchy, um, Glass-Lewis and ISS, they control 95 plus percent of the market for kind of third party advisory services in this area. And so they have tremendous influence to move uh, votes in corporate America uh, for proposals that are put before shareholders. I would say they move votes more than any other other institution out there. Um, They are probably the major influence in in how institutional investors are voting. Um, Yes. And I think that institutional investors got the idea that these were politically unbiased processes. Um, but then they started to look closely at the vote results and said, wait a minute, this doesn't all seem consistent with the idea of the fiduciary responsibility, which is to put the retiree or the investor's interest above all other interests. Some of it seems to be more influenced um, by politics and politics of the left. And I think that's the pattern that you spotted as well. So you send a letter and a questionnaire. What did you say to them and what did you ask them? So we really are, our number one concern is, are you following fiduciary standard that is required uh, for 
um, people that are managing other people's money. You know, we have a lot of uh, beneficiaries in our states that are invested with uh, institutional investors. And, and we want to make sure that that money is is being managed in a way that is consistent with the fiduciary standard. And those fiduciary standards have been around for decades uh, and, and really are there to protect individual investors who hand their money over to others to to invest. You know, they've got to be able to trust those advisors and those uh, um, um, service providers that have a hand in how how their money is is managed and ultimately the amount of money that they end up with in in retirement it's it's a really important issue one of the things that i really like about this is that um i've been involved with what might one might call esg skeptical <laughs> approach to finance for a long time um back when it was basically almost like flat earth crazy to say wait a minute maybe esg is not, is not all that it's uh, cracked up to be but at some point, you know, something that some people call woke capitalism kind of got out and everybody was paying attention to it and it seemed to be a problem. But what I saw to some degree is that Conservative Inc. was talking about the proxy services or about the companies, you know, say, for instance, Disney or Target, but not talking to them. And you don't influence somebody that you talk about, but don't talk to. Right. And what I'm seeing you and this group of almost Minutemen, you know, the treasurers <laughs> and also attorneys general now um, yes. doing is you're talking to them. I think that's really important because I, I agree there are a lot of problems with these proxy services, but isn't one of the problems that we didn't talk to them and other people were interested and they did talk to them and they showed up and they steered the conversation in such a direction that they gave the impression that the center was here because we weren't there to bring the center back to the center. You, you see what I'm driving at? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And that, that's exactly that's exactly right, because. You know these these corporate boards um, weren't weren't really hearing from another side, and so they would get sort of I think a distorted perspective on the way they should be going on on some of these proposals, and, and even just the management of the company and the direction of companies. We had to, and, and we still need to show up in the boardroom to say no. There is another viewpoint here. Uh, a lot of companies don't want to go the way of Bud Light and Target and, and North Face, right? But they don't hear totally. from their side. Yeah. And so it is that engagement that is critical, whether it's in the proxy voting process or just in, in you know, everyday uh, consumer consumerism, right? And how we spend our money. We need consumers to step up just like they've done with Anheuser-Busch, like what they've done with Target and let their voices be heard and said, no, we are not going to support things that we don't agree with that are actually undermining our society and harming us as uh, as Americans. We don't want companies doing that. And if you do, there will be a price to be paid. There's, there's lots of different ways to engage. And, and thankfully, we're starting to see it more now. And I think what you're doing now is kind of another step upward in terms of that, because absolutely, we ought to be talking to the companies. Um, but you're now talking to the people who talk to the companies. You're now influencing the influencers. 
um, because ISS is talking to all the companies. It's got recommendations with all the companies. It's affecting every. So maybe you can't talk to 5,000 companies. I've talked to a lot of companies, and it's probably still only just a few hundred. Uh, so, uh, but ISS is talking to all of them. And so I think activists really kind of pushed ISS in a certain direction. And now you're coming forward to say, wait a minute, let's talk about this. Um, I can tell you some conversations I've had on the record and some off the record. Let's just go with on the record. ISS um, says, well, we believe in disclosure. You know, we tend to, we, we default to disclosure. So we want to disclose the risks of, you know, greenhouse gases. But they didn't support a proposal from David Bonson to disclose the risk of decarbonization. That's disclosure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or we want to disclose the, the risks. We want disclosure about um, gender and racial makeup, but they don't want disclosure about viewpoint diversity makeup. Or they right. want to, they want disclosure about what professional association you're a member of, or are you giving money to American Legislative Exchange Council or the State Financial Officers Foundation? We want you to disclose that so we can shame you. But they don't call for disclosure of charitable contributions. And what the common thing here is, not for or against disclosure, but for disclosure when the left asks for it and against disclosure when the right asks for it. And yeah, I mean, there's no, I can't find any logically consistent explanation for that other than essentially interest groups influencing the, the process. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've seen this play out in, in other ways, like um, Prop 8 in California, you know, people that supported Proposition 8 in California, it was the uh, ban on gay marriage back in the mid-2000s, right? If, if, if you were on the list of contributors, you were targeted. And that's the same playbook that we see with these quote-unquote disclosures, right? They want disclosures, but only certain disclosures. And those disclosures are then weaponized against a, a firm if they're making contributions are supporting the wrong organizations. It's the same thing with, you know, misinformation and disinformation. If you're providing the wrong information in the marketplace, you'll, you'll be shut down. You'll be silenced. Hmm. Yeah. And it's fascinating to, you know, to see so many of these proposals for disclosure of say, you know, giving money to um, a competitive enterprise institute or even the Chamber of Commerce somehow. They're on, the Chamber of Commerce is on the cancel list. Um, you know, that's, things are getting pretty crazy out there in ESG world. But what's fascinating is they couch it in terms of reputational risk. You know, yep. you, you, these, these contributions might be reputationally risky because you said the word equality five years ago. Uh, and these groups don't believe in abortion. Therefore, they don't believe in equality. Therefore, you're not congruent with your past statements. Right. But they're yeah. not protecting the company from reputational risk. They're stoking reputational risk. They're, <laughs> they're digging in there so they can – they're basically forcing the company to do opposition research against itself so they can shame the company. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. Um, and, and it's sort of like these self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, they say this is a risk and then they want to create – uh, uh, action to make it appear as if it's a risk, <laughs> right? It's just yeah. we're going to protect you from the risk that is us. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, nice business you have there. Shame of something were to happen to it. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, they are. They're creating. And, and by the way, I find these companies are maybe waking up to this a little bit. I had for me the highlight of the annual meeting season was the Exxon um, annual mm. meeting where the CEO of Exxon called, as you so, out on the carpet. 
um, and because they're supporting all these disclosure, disclose this and confess your sins. Um, you know, if if some if someone were a lawyer and they were going to sue you, what would you estimate is the litigatory damage of the that you've done to the environment? Oh yeah, that's really very pro fiduciary for the company to say we're responsible for twenty trillion dollars in environmental damage. But the CEO said to, at the, the director of As You Sow, you are an adversary of this company. Wow, you, you are an adversary. I, that was refreshing. I think there's a real waking up going on with these companies. They are tired of getting jerked around by these people. Well, and I think they and I think they feel that there's support for them in the marketplace, right? The, the, the support has has been a little bit slow in coming, but once it's there, then then these CEOs and and the boards feel like they can stand up because they have protection from other investors, right? That are suddenly going to, you know, vote in the best interest of, of shareholders. That That is really what corporate America needs. They need that, the strength to stand up knowing that there are people there to, that, that, that share their same views. They need cover, right? And, exactly. and you are offering them cover now to do what it is that most of them want to do. Most of these Correct. CEOs, what, they want to run a bank, they want to run an energy company, they want to run a retailer. They, they, if they wanted to be politicians, they would have run for Senate. That's but right. they had higher ambitions. They wanted to be CEO. They wanted to do something <laughs> more useful. And then all of a sudden, they're getting pulled into all this. Po- I mean, even Larry Fink recently said, well, I'm embarrassed to be involved with this political debate. Well, don't if you're embarrassed to be in a political debate. Don't get into a political debate. But, um, you know, it's not there's an opportunity to get out. And I suppose what I'm seeing is maybe, it's hard to tell for sure, but maybe you're also offering cover to the advisory services. Um, because yeah, I'm I noticing they are recommending no votes more often on stuff coming from the left. Like They used to support somewhere in the neighborhood of three quarters of shareholder proposals. Wow. Now it's roughly 50-50. Mm. Because as this thing has moved left, they are saying, wait a minute, hold on, this is going too far and starting to vote no. And they're getting beaten up by the left now. It's fascinating. So I think there's a real opportunity, kind of like a redemptive moment here to have meaningful dialogue. And I think that's what you and the other treasurers are doing with this letter. Yeah. And and that's really, you you know, that's really important that, that the, the market that um, the market of ideas is is robust. That it's not just one side trying to push their views on everyone else. That's the only way markets work is to have alternative viewpoints and to, you know, really um, try to do what's in the best interest of shareholders. This is a really important standard that we have to uphold in this country. And the fact that the proposals have gotten so far afield and, and really have have turned companies into small political organizations is very dangerous and, and unpopular with most of Americans. Most Americans don't want business politicized. And, and it's really has started with the largest companies and the shareholder activists and the, the advisory firms. Right. Uh, that, that's really where this uh, battle is happening. And so, you know, I felt like it was really important that we call it out um, bring light to the situation. Uh, let let corporate America know that that they don't have to go this way, um, and and confront the the um, 
advisory firms and and say, hey, are, are you doing what's are, are you recommending what is in the best interest of our our shareholders? Because that's what we're counting on. We have standards and laws in this country for that very reason. Right. And you've got to be able to do your fiduciary duty or uh, there's going to be problems for for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I thought your questions were very reasonable. A lot of the questions were simply, have you done an analysis showing that such right. and such a policy on, say, racial equity audits uh, or decarbonization of various forms, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions or methane emissions or whatever? We're seeing a lot more of the methane emissions. Do you have analysis which shows that this is additive for shareholders, that this serves the fiduciary responsibility um, and do you have back tests to show that? Show right. us, show us, you know, you're showing, you're giving us the answer. Show us the homework, you know, like yes. in, in, you know, in math class, don't just give the answer, Jerry, show your That's work. Right. <laughs> you're saying to them, show your work. That's a reasonable thing to ask of them. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is supposed to be, uh, there's supposed to be some financial benefit to this uh, proposal. So let's see. Let's see what it is. You can show us how this helps a, a shareholder. And, you know, with a lot of the environmental proposals, there are, there are serious consequences for moving away from fossil fuel. Um, there's a lot of costs associated with that. We don't have alternative sources of energy that are as, you know, cost effective and, and uh you know, can can carry the weight, if you will, uh, the base load power, for example. Um, there are major costs to us economically by having brownouts, you know, during summers and, you know, an inconsistent um, grid. And, and nobody talks about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit lately is let's say that I bought the whole thing. Let's say I bought that the earth is warming that it's warming not because of the sun, not because of solar activity, even though it looks like there is increased solar activity, which isn't caused by our cars. You know, the sun isn't acting up because of our cars. Um, there's evidence that Mars is warming, for example. That's, you know, that's not us. We're not doing that. Um, so, but let's say I said, okay, it's, it's warming. It's not the sun. <laughs> it's terrestrial. It's industrial. Um, Somehow, if we decarbonize here in the West, India and China will too, so that decarbonization, you know, I mean, I have to buy a lot of assumptions. But let's say I bought every single one of those assumptions. I still would come to the conclusion that if the, that the investment risk still wouldn't be with oil companies. It would be with, I don't know, coast, coastal, you know, coastal cities. In other words, if I really thought that the whole global warming shebang was accurate, what I would be doing is divesting Manhattan and Los Angeles um, and Portland, you know, and Seattle yeah. real estate. I wouldn't be divesting from landlocked companies that you know that are you know, producing energy. I mean, they they have the wonderful advantage of being able to sell energy, you know, at a profit and have the externalities apparently imposed on the coastline. So even if I bought all that, they're not aligning <laughs> the risk in any way with the no. with the reality. Unless you just go with the idea, with, well, eventually the world will wake up and it'll it'll legalize it, and then you'll have a stranded asset. Um, mm -hmm. and it'll have to be written off. Um, yeah, and, and the, you know the other thing is is if we move away from 
uh, you know, ExxonMobil or Chevron or, or one of these majors um, to a third world, um, you know, state owned enterprise to extract oil, that's worse for the environment um, than, than our oil companies doing that activity. So it's, you know, it's a bit like exporting our pollution from here to China. Yeah. It didn't help the environment. It just made China much worse off. And, you know, I don't know uh, what it did to the global climate, but we, uh, we yeah. just didn't see much of it. I think selling these assets to front groups for Russian oligarchs or Saudi oligarchs uh, or Indian oligarchs, <laughs> you know, through private equity, I'm just I just don't see how we get better human rights or environmental outcomes from from that. No. No, it just it, it 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 ends up being a lot of um, window dressing and and virtue signaling and and saying look at how how great we are because we don't have investments in oil and gas. Meanwhile, we're chronically underinvested in that area, and and all of us are are hurting because of you know gas prices that are higher than they should otherwise be and have been historically. Yeah, and unfortunately, it hurts. Those who can least afford it, you know, the the, the uh, poorest among us pay three times their income, uh, three times the amount of their income on energy costs as kind of the average person. And so it really harms uh, the, those who can least, least afford it. That, that's one of the saddest parts of this whole. Why don't the environmental topic. racial justice folks ever talk about that? Right? As, that disproportionately yeah. poor and minorities, the, the cost of higher energy and heating falls on that group. Uh, because that group well, is disproportionately, you know, at the margin economically. I mean, yeah, I, I think it seems like, general... sounds like systemic racism to me to decarbonize yes. the economy. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a general mistrust of markets. I think there's a general mistrust of capitalism. There's been this war on capitalism. There is a, a, a global effort to, you know, reset to a more, um, you know, what is it, a more humane yeah, yeah some, you know kind of uh, uh, economic system but there is not a better system than than the system that we have in the united states it has it has proven to not just generate wealth but to also uh help provide for those who can least afford it our, our the, the poorest people in this country are are better off than you know most other countries um and, and that's a function of of market efficiencies when you when you move away from market efficiencies to centralized planning and this top-down centralized control you create tremendous inefficiencies in the marketplace that that manifest themselves in higher prices and and goods and services that are out of the out of reach of you know common everyday folks or at least the the poorest among us so it, it really is a major uh, risk to to those who can least afford it to have this kind of a um, totalitarian you know push against markets to centralized uh, planning. And I note um, just this year, I, I've started to see appear resolutions from the groups on the left. Um, let's, let's call them what they are: the groups on the left. Um, which so it's really weird when they criticize Republican elected officials for being anti-free market. When yeah. you say, when you're managing our money, we want you to just take into account factors that are shown to be relevant to return. You know, we don't want you to take into account other factors that are, are not additive to return. Oh, no. Right. 
you're you're anti-free market. No, you're customers, and you're asking for the best product. But so they're, they're folks on the left, and once in a while they'll pretend to be conservative just to try to shame us. Um, but the, the, the new proposals I'm seeing say to companies, when you say we're decreasing our greenhouse gas emissions, you do not get to count assets that you sold to somebody else. In other words, mm. if you it used to be that if you sold an oil field or you sold a natural gas well, you could say our greenhouse gas has, uh, emissions have gone down by a certain amount. Oh, wow. and, and these folks are now recognizing the truth of the critique that we've been making all along, which is that divesting the asset doesn't decrease emission. The only thing that would decrease emission is to put a concrete slab over top of it and retire it. Yeah. Right? So all those years where they were pushing for greenhouse gas emission reductions and the companies were responding to that by divesting and giving, you know, selling it to other places, we, we were right. <laughs> they're not yeah. acknowledging, but that instead of saying, oh, so it doesn't work, now they're going to the more draconian thing, which is, well, then you have to buy even more carbon offsets because, right. you know, it's because if, if, if anybody's burning it, it's on your, it's, it's almost like medieval indulgences. If anybody's burning it, it's on your account. So you got to pay extra to Tetzel. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, so it's fascinating to see how much they're following out the inner logic of those, of, of that idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really kind of perverse because if you just step back and you let the markets operate, you, you allow innovation to happen. Uh, we will have innovation at some point that will be like the car. You know, we, we, today's conversation about energy transitions is like, you know, shooting the, the horse in 1870 before you had a car. Mm. Now, I don't know the exact timeline, but, the, but we're talking about transitioning to, you know, renewable energy, but that's not reliable energy. And we don't have anything that is non-fossil fuel other than nuclear, and, and, and people don't want that either. So, right. you know, it, it makes absolutely no sense. This is the first time that I'm aware of in, in the history of our modern uh, market system where, where we are basically abandoning the markets in favor of top-down centralized you know, forcing behaviors, you know, this energy transition, you have to start transitioning. Well, what what are you transitioning to? And it, it just makes absolutely no sense. And, and it doesn't help anybody. And it's not improving the environment, necessarily, it just creates distortions that, that harm all of us. Historically, when you use up an energy resource, the price rises, and that creates incentives for another resource. So there's a time when we were burning wood, but, you know, uh, forests were shrinking, and we got better at coal, and we went from wood to coal, right? And then, you know, there was a time when we were using whale oil, but you know, that was prohibitively expensive. You know, go read Moby Dick. You know, you lose lives chasing this stuff. So there's yeah. like the, the market adjusts. But we, in essence, what we're trying to do is create a scarcity that doesn't exist because Correct. we believe that a scarcity will exist in the future. So instead of responding to an actual scarcity, we create an artificial scarcity to try to push someone over to a resource that we don't have available yet, which, That's by right. the way, has tremendous environmental overflow. 
Uh, yes. Solar solar panels are there's a lot of toxic chemicals go into solar panels. Well, and, and then you they become dependent on China, right? Um, because that's where most of the solar is coming from, and then you know all of the you know minerals and things that go into a solar panel, it's just like the electric vehicle. And slave labor for chromium and cobalt in Africa, where children are getting cancer. And this is another thing that really kind of shocks me about ESG world. Um, you know, for the first meeting I ever participated in was Exelon, and somebody, I think it was Steve Malloy, had a proposal to look at their supply chain for electric batteries to see human rights abuses. And of course, they opposed it, and the proxy services opposed it, and the ESG world opposed it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I would go on and see, they always wanted to look at supply chain problems, you know, with every other. Is there a human rights abuse in your Saudi supply chain? Is there a human rights right. abuse, whatever. But they didn't want to know about children getting cancer in Africa. And the very first time I saw the ESG group come out in favor of this was just this year when they endorsed a proposal like that against Tesla. Because Elon bought Twitter, criticized ESG. Now, yeah, all of a sudden, well, maybe we need to take a look at your supply chain for all these electric <laughs> vehicles when they had been always opposing these proposals. It's fascinating how political and personal and ad hoc it is. That is really interesting. Yeah, it, 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 it really uh, points to the ideological um, purity that is, you know, desired in all of this. So what, uh, what else did you ask the proxy services? I mean, I read it all, but um, if you, what, what would you consider the highlights of the questions you've asked of them? No, oh, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, we ask a lot of, uh, you know, just really wanted to, to understand a lot of different areas, um, you know, like conflicts of interest. Uh, that was another, you know, big area. A What's lot that of these... about? You, conflicts of interest. You want to expand yeah, on that a lot little bit? Uh, yeah, a lot of the firms um, or the the uh, the um, advisory firms, they'll uh, you know the, they recommend uh, votes on on uh, ESG, and then they'll consult uh, with companies on how they can you know uh, um, improve their score. Find- yeah, improving their score. Improving. I'm going to consult with you on how you can improve a grade that I give you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, that. I, look, I don't know whether it's shady, but it's at least worth asking about. You know, let's yeah. hear their answer to it. I'd be interested to hear, yeah. you know, what their response is to that. Yeah, and, you know, do they um, do they uh, push companies to join, um, you know, some of these net zero uh, alliances? Right. Does that does that help uh, in their in their score? Um, hmm. You know, it's 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 just crazy stuff. Um, and then, you know, uh, we've got asking about climate related proposals and, you know, wanting to get into the social and uh, proposals on diversity and racial equity. Um, the right. And trying to understand those. Um, and then, and then, you know, understanding these issues related to a proposal coming from the right versus the left, you know, how are you making recommendations that are essentially the same recommendation? Why are you recommending a, a yes because it's backed by a certain organization? And why are you recommending a no because it's a different organization? Well, yeah, like, for instance, with discrimination, um, that – if a, if if um, there was a proposal saying we want you to show that you don't discriminate, 
Um, and the company said, just take our word for it. We don't discriminate. Yeah. That they, they wouldn't get away with that. Yet somehow, when the company says, just take our word for it, we don't reverse discriminate. Somehow we're supposed to take their word for it. That's an odd inconsistency in my view. Mm-hmm. Especially given the recent ruling from the Supreme Court. I mean, if this is all about risk management, the Supreme Court struck down quotas based on affirmative action. Now, I know that's state, that's, that's colleges and universities that are a little bit more enmeshed in the state, but it does put um, affirmative action quotas into a legally very murky situation, which to me yeah. puts a lot of these companies into a pretty legally murky situation, especially the ones that have said, we will have 30% representation of XYZ, uh, you know, within the next five to 10 years. Uh, I'm, it seems to me that ESG sold itself as risk management, but it turned out to be risk acceleration. Yes. <laughs> well, and so much of so much of what we're seeing is using discrimination to discriminate. We, yes. we have a lot of this kind of stuff, right? And and you know, in California, I think in 2021 there was a, a law passed that. Companies had to have two female directors. The Los Angeles Court of Appeals struck that down as unconstitutional, um, and I think rightfully so. Right when we're pushing these um, demographic quotas, that is so counter to all of the kind of jurisprudence that we've had over the years. That you know, we all kind of thought the ideal was a colorblind society, and now right. suddenly we're being told no that that no, you actually have to look at the world through the lens of oppressors and oppressed. Right, and, right. right. And, and oppress the, uh, the oppressed uh, people and attack the oppressors and, uh, you know, in, in trying to uh, balance the, the playing field. Well, that's right out of Mao's cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that's how crazy this has gotten. And, and people just need to understand the, the ideologies behind it and recognize that this is not uh, the way we as Americans uh, operate uh, our affairs, that, that we're a land of opportunity, that w- we talk about equality of opportunity and, and not equity of outcomes, and um, that, that we want to help each other, but we want to do it in a way that we are choosing to help each other, not being forced to help each other. Yeah. Uh, this whole movement is is about coercion and, and forcing people to act certain ways and to do certain ways because somebody believes that that it's in our best interest to do so. And it just is clearly not. And I think we're seeing that the vanguard of the revolution has to keep moving forward. In other words, mm-hmm. um, this is the this is why I'm a conservative rather than a leftist. Because for a conservative, my goals are achievable. The, I mean, the ultimate conservatism is don't change anything. Now, maybe we should change some things, right? Um, systemic, you know, uh, yeah. uh, you know uh, apartheid or our version of apartheid, Jim Crow, that needed to change. The liberals had a point. Okay. But, the, but conservatism, is, conservatism is about staying put, which is a finite goal. Leftism is a vector, not a position. So it keeps going. So, okay, we should have women on board of directors. I think the data supports that. Now, whether a mandate's different, right? But companies yep. with a woman on the board of directors do outperform. I've seen it in the data. I'm a conservative, so I trickle, triple-checked it. It's like, nope, that's what the data says. I'm going to go where the data says. But I, I, I'm starting to see proposals now from the controller of New York 
what you're saying. We want you to disclose your diversity. And under gender diversity, we want you to disclose a diversity by, um, by gender identity. In other words, gender is erased now. The proposal is we want to see a diversity matrix and we do not want to see anything about biological women. You, mm. you can be a board made up completely of people with Y chromosomes. But if some of those people with Y chromosomes say, I'm a woman, you have a gender diverse board. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't even know because we're, the disclosure would only be based on self-identification. Your biological women are essentially erased by that. Yeah. So you see how, how it just goes off into crazy town. Uh, yeah. And it keeps pushing. Yeah. And, and that's one of the um, interesting uh, um, mind experiments that a friend of mine has with his liberal friends. He says, let's pretend that you're king for a day. And what would your ideal world look like? And it is almost impossible for them to describe an ideal world because it's not a, a fixed, you know, it's it's a vector, like you said. It just it, it it just keeps consuming and consuming and consuming, and there's no endpoint to which uh, a leftist is happy with, with the state of things, and and that's very insightful. I think, uh, and, and, and maybe causes some people to give pause to, to their own ideological um, whims to say, wait a second, I am not going to be happy under any circumstances. The only, the only way I'm happy is when things are being destroyed. Right. <laughs> Destroying things in the hope of something better, right. which has never existed. Exactly. That's right. The utopia of the communists is, is not achievable. Right. And, and it creates death and destruction as a byproduct of trying to get to this utopia. So it seems uh, it, to me what, what you're doing is by engaging with the proxy services and with the asset managers, but I'm particularly interested in proxy services right now because that's a new area. We're, you know, we're getting into that now. Of, that's a new area to be getting into. And I think it's, it's promising. You know, someone is pulling them. Because yes. the they're human beings. The people at the proxy services are human beings. They take their kids to the Little League, whatever. So ideological groups are pulling them. And it's a little bit like the companies. They're like, how far? where are you taking me? How far does this go exactly? <laughs> and you're, right. you're coming along asking some probing questions so that that vector, we're kind of like grabbing a hold of that vector and saying, hold on a second. We're going to add a little friction to your vector of social revolution. Yeah. Um, because what, we're, what we saw with Disney, what we saw with Target, that surely can't be shareholder centric to destroy $30 billion in market cap in a matter of a few weeks and trashing some of the most valuable brands in America. Uh, hold on a little bit of brake pedal action, but, but that yeah. doesn't happen unless you talk to them and that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's that engagement that hopefully, uh, you know, can bring another view and, and can slow this thing down because, you know, in the French Revolution, you know, it was based off of leftism, right? Um, these kinds of activities end up consuming everyone, even if you're a proponent of it in the beginning. Robespierre had his head chopped off, just the same as the aristocrats. 
And and that's why this kind of ideology is so dangerous. It doesn't stop. It, it doesn't, doesn't stop. Like stop. The, the black book, right. right? All the people whose yeah. citizenship, I denounce you. Um, yes, the French Revolution. In fact, interesting historical thing. You, you said the French Revolution comes from the left. That's where we get the the word left in this context. The, mm. the, the revolutionaries sat on the left side of the General oh, Assembly, and the monarchists sat on the right side of the okay. General Assembly. Um, <laughs> so isn't that interesting? That by is the, so, why, so why did they sit on the left side? Well, they read Matthew 25, um, mm. where the goats are sent off to the left. And mm. they ironically, you know, they kind of, uh, uh, you know, grab that for themselves. Um, yeah. Isn't that fascinating? They, that is. they wanted to be associated with the goats who are on the left. That's in Eric von Kienholz, uh, Ledeen's history. And so where did, and where did people who would be like, like where did the de Tocquevilles, you know, the, the, the liberals sit in the center? The people who eventually mm-hmm. became America, the people who were aligned with, they weren't monarchists. They weren't right. revolutionaries. Right. They said, you know, you monarchists have a point. We are going to have a president. Uh, but... He's going to have limited power and he's going to be constitutional. But that's a little bit like a monarch, but, you know, with a lot of restraint. And, hey, right. you people, you revolutionaries have a point. There should be change. And maybe we'll have to move away from England and we have to have an elective representation. We kind of balanced those things together and created what, what I think is the greatest nation in the history of the world. Well, absolutely. It, it, it has created more freedom, uh, more prosperity. Um, you know, more progress in the world uh, than any other system. And and yet uh, there are forces that are trying to foment dissatisfaction, um, division. Uh, we're seeing we're seeing incredible amounts of division being fomented today, despite, um, you know, tremendous progress on on race relations and and, you know, all these things that we hear about being wrong with America. Uh, the historical record does not uh, support those arguments, um, but it is creating a very dangerous environment. You know, if you can convince people that there is a crisis, uh, you can catastrophize people. You see, you can see what happens. Uh, people become irrational and they start demanding, um, you know, the shutting down businesses and industries that are critical to the the welfare of everyone. You know, power being one of them and the agriculture being another. Um, so it, it's really that that rhetoric and of dissatisfaction um, and division that I, I think is is incredibly dangerous. You know, James Madison said crisis is the rallying cry of the tyrant. Mm. And I was very, very much uh, correct on that, that, that when we can get, convince people that there is a crisis then you can get people to give up their um, personal freedoms and, and, and personal liberties. Um, and that's why I think the, the climate crisis is so dangerous. It's, it's a global phenomenon. And, and so you can, you can get uh, people to move things globally that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get them to do if it were some kind of a local uh, issue. Um, and, and so that's why I think this the globalists love uh, climate change because it it gives them an, an opening to exert uh, power and influence over the world. Mm. Right. I mean, stops the who wouldn't do anything to stop the world from burning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And, and if you don't, then you're a part of the problem. We saw it. We saw it play out in COVID, right? right. Uh, if you're not vaccinated, then you are the problem, and and you will be hunted down and and uh, destroyed, right? If you're an enemy of, if you're viewed as an enemy of the climate or or you know whatever it is, then you are an enemy to the people. Um, and so you, you create these oppressors and oppressed kinds of narratives that give licensure to to go after you, right? And, and suddenly the, the liberties that we and the peace and the liberty that we've enjoyed in this country is no longer um, no longer there. It's it's really dangerous. Yeah, I just uh, finished rereading um, George Gilder's new book. Um... Life after capitalism, he refers to emergency socialism. You know, the mm. idea that people who wouldn't affirm socialism, but in this particular case, yeah, we need right. to shut the whole economy down because 200 million people will die from COVID. Look, I was no COVID denialist. It was a real disease. It was serious, killed a lot of people. Uh, but some of these, some of these um, forecasts, 200 million dead that were coming out of Imperial College were based on clear mathematical, you know, um, well, dodgy math at best, yeah. right? Yeah. And so what is it about elites that, well, I've, I think you've already said it, that emergencies are the way to grab power um, because, I don't know, something's empty, you have to save the world or you don't feel mm-hmm. at home. I, there's something about these Davos guys, they feel like the, the Larry Finks. I don't want to get too psychological, but they don't have to save the world. I mean, see, I, I, I believe the world's already been saved. Uh, we have yeah. to be decent to one another. But mm-hmm. saving the world is not any well. It's only one human being's job, and it and it and it happened two thousand years ago. And in the meantime, let's just try to minimize harm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just try to. Well, and and there is there is sort of a um, you know there a lot, for a long time uh, around the world you've you've heard efforts to uh, depopulate. You know, I mean, China's one child policy, right to slow. Yes. Um, growth and um, you know Jane Goodall believes that the the world needs to get down to 500 million humans. Um, I mean these are these kinds of ideologies um, are haven't gone away. And so, they, g- given that we're heading towards 10 billion to get down to half a billion, yeah, you know that's uh, that's. You know, what, you know, keep keeping only one twentieth of humanity. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, it's scary, yeah. right? Um, and and so there are some, you know, some common themes there um, that, that you see. Some of these um, activists pushing things in in the name of climate, um, but as you peel back the layer of the onion, you know, it's. Whether they mean to or not, it certainly could lead to depopulation. Yes. Well, and I think the more the left goes crazy, the more there's an opportunity for sane conservatives to talk to sane liberals. Yeah. Um, um, and centrists. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing talking to these asset managers, not talking about them, talking to them, so important. Talking to the proxy services, not just talking about them, but talking to them and them talking back to you. I think it's incredibly important work that you're doing. Anything you want to say before um, I let you go? Anything we didn't cover that you want to cover? 
Well, I'm, I'm just uh, grateful for for the opportunity to to uh, educate people about what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, you know, so many people hear ESG and they think it's socially responsible investing. Uh, you know, they think it's just about improving the world. But when you understand the dynamics of the shareholder activists and and what these proxy advisory firms have have been supporting. Um, you understand that, that this is really an attempt to uh, politicize our our uh, our country and and businesses, and that it, it is harmful to all of us. Uh, and so, people really need to understand that and stand up and and let their voices be heard. And I think more people are doing that. And I really appreciate your uh, efforts to to bring this um, to to people's minds. And they are. And um... They're following people like you. Uh, I mean, I think when the history is written, the row officers, the boring old row office, <laughs> you know, the state, no, I, people, you know, um, who's my treasurer? I don't know who my treasurer is, right? Um, a good right. treasurer, you probably don't know their name. I guess, but it's not the, the point isn't whether the, tre- the voter knows who the treasurer is. That The point is the treasurer knows who their citizens are. Um, yeah. And you guys were the, I think, the variable they hadn't counted on. So keep at it, yeah. my friend. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm Jerry Boyer. You've been listening to Meeting of Minds podcast. My guest has been Marlo Oaks, treasurer of the state of Utah. 